Hey, this podcast podcast episode is brought to you by Used to Go to Church. You know, life can often be brutal, unjust, and fraught with emotional trauma. As a first responder chaplain for nearly 25 years, author Nick Felicities has experienced countless scenes of unbearable grief and pain. When asking the brokenhearted, do you have a faith to help you through? The response in some form is almost always, well, we used to go to church. Blending first-hand accounts of tragedy with opportunity for raw self-examination and reflection, in his book, Used to Go to Church, Felicities delves into the realm of spirituality and belief amid loss and despair. For the spiritual but not religious who want to pursue God outside the walls of organized religion, Used to Go to Church is an invitation to rethink faith and open up to a life centered on grace, mercy, and love. Now, whether you are religious, non-religious, Christian, or agnostic, churchgoer, or church lever, the person who is starting with page one of Used to Go to Church will not be the same person who finishes the last sentence. Available on Amazon in all formats, visit Nick's blog at usedtogotochurch.com. Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Welcome back to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. I'm excited that you are here today. I wanted to give a little disclaimer that today we will be talking about intimate partner violence. And so if that is something that you are not ready to hear, then I'm going to encourage you to take a listen to one of our other podcasts or revisit those. I also would love to ask if you are enjoying this podcast to share it with a friend. Also to like and subscribe and please leave us a review. Also, you can contact us on our website at reframingourstories.com and send us an email. Tell us what you appreciate about the podcast or what you want to hear more of, because we want to uh, make it, you know, something that you want to come back to. Also, feel free to contact us if you are needing help to have these sexual health conversations in your own family home or with the organization that you work with. And we would love to help you in that. This is something we love to do and it's our passion. It's true what they say, that you don't always know what's going on with another person. This is true for me after years of interacting with Pam Miles, who helped coordinate all the workshops I led at the ELCA Lutheran Youth Ministry Network conferences that I did around sex. I didn't know that Pam was a domestic violence survivor. I also didn't realize that Pam wrote a book about her experience called Mile Zero. When I heard that she has been sharing her story to help others reframe theirs, I knew I wanted to talk to her. Pam Miles comes from a multi-generational lineage of domestic violence, but that has not stopped her from redefining her story moving forward. Author of Mile Zero, Pam continues to speak publicly about the importance of breaking harmful cycles, both in families and societal systems, and how one person can indeed make a difference in another's life. Pam is a solo pastor of the ELCA congregation in Mukilateo, Washington. 
as one who cares deeply about children and family safety and their health, she's this year's Snohomish County Domestic Violence Resource Services main speaker. Pam has served on the King County Juvenile Diversion Unit and has taught Safe Haven Boundaries courses nationally. She wrote her book, Mile Zero, during her rehab from brain surgery, following a brain bleed in 2020, where she had to relearn to walk and once again rewrite her story moving forward. Pam continues to be called courageous, inspiring, and persistent by all who know her story of survival and witnessing what can be. Pam, it is so good to have you here. Thank you for joining me. So glad to be here with you. I actually, I think, I think this is a part probably of the story around domestic violence, but I think because it's something that's very quiet, Mm. I think when I first learned a little bit more about your story, I was very surprised. And I'm wondering if that comes with that because we keep it very silent, right? So um, because it's something that I think a lot of people avoid talking about, I find that um, there's a lot of shame that comes with it. Uh, I think people in the general, general public don't necessarily know how to even know what to do with their feelings around it. And so I am curious, first of all, of all, how did you let go or how, how were you able to get past the shame to start to change your story around domestic violence? Oh, that's a good question and a deep question. Uh, There's so many layers to that because for some there's shame, Um, for some you're rewriting the words that have been implanted in your brain. Uh, by your abuser. And that can be um, years and generational, right? And that's what I write about in my book, how those words are imprinted on us. And um, so that forms how we will or won't talk about it. Um, It's interesting that you say, because we've known each other, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You never knew. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does that say about me and how I carry myself Mm -hmm. uh, as well? obviously no longer a victim, but a survivor. And I really make a point of that in, in when I do speeches that I am a survivor mm-hmm. and I want to make more survivors. And that's what the book is about as well. Um, but this idea that the biggest shame part for me has been when people find out I'm remarried. Interesting. It's with the divorce. That really? Somehow there's a part that I failed in a marriage. And then when I say that was domestic violence and that's why I left it, then it seems like, oh, well, okay, then that's okay. There's more burden and shame with the idea of divorce than um, domestic violence. I feel that was just what I've encountered. But when we talk about domestic violence and leaving that, the burden is usually put on for the most part, women until they find their voice, like, what did you do? Oh Um, my gosh. What didn't you do? How come you didn't leave sooner? I had an interview with a local newspaper and he was interviewing me. He says, so wait a second, you knew your children were being harmed and you still chose to stay. And it's like, oh, you don't know the first thing about being a victim. Yeah. 
you're uh, definitely coming from a male privilege conversation here. Yes. Because there is such embedded um, burden upon the victim. You're not good enough. Mm-hmm. No one ever wants you. Um, you're a failure. You're miserable to be with. Um, that you as a victim in domestic violence don't feel any self-worth to even see yourself beyond what that um, person has made you into. Yeah. So to break that, I, I think the, the word shame sometimes does, doesn't quite feel like it fits. It's more of when one is a victim in domestic violence, how do you get past the identity that your abuser has placed on you? It feels the word that's, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but the word that came to my mind is the illusion. Mm -hmm. It feels like they have created an illusion, you know, that we take on, which is a form of identity, but it's almost, to me, it would be like navigating a house of mirrors. Yes. Right. Of trying to move past that. And it makes me so angry and I'm sorry that people put this element of shame around the divorce because actually today I just with an Instagram post right that I have to do for my business I was thinking about relationships because so many people I've been talking about um, with different folks in my life around relationships that end Mm -hmm. and I think that we need to reframe that story of just because a relationship ends it's not a failure it's more of an awakening Oh my gosh, that's so amazing because I had a pastor when I was going through divorce and I felt like a failure and I used that word and it was by his good grace, this pastor said, no, you have survived. Look at how many years you invested in Mm -hmm. and you tried, you learned from something that didn't work. And, you know, we wisdom, even in the Bible, right? We, We gain wisdom by not being successful. If everything always goes our way, we're mm-hmm. never learning. Right. Actually right. take things for granted. And so, but for divorce to be this, I hate that word failure. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's so horrible and icky. <laughs> it is. And it's just sad because I think, and that's one of the things that I try to bring for people is in the study of, of sexuality, you learn that we are always just trying to get our needs met. And when we are given an image or a story growing up around what love is supposed to be like, like we see it in media and then we have our home experience. And oftentimes the messages we are getting don't completely add up. And we have to spend our lifetime trying to figure out how those messages um, relate and then also feel in our bodies and what feels true to us and what feels okay and good in our own bones, our own bones that may not also be equivocal to what society says is okay. Right. Right. You're reconciling these two different areas that the society says, this is how a relationship could be. And then what you witness within your own household, parents, grandparents, all that most times I would Mm -hmm. say, do not match. Yes. So with that, 
you had talked about a little bit that you have escaped generational lineage of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So what were, when, since we just talked about how we learn so much within these relationships that we experience in the home, then, um, and we get these imprints. So you get an imprint of what your ex-husband was telling you, and then you get this imprint ahead of time that we bring into these relationships. So how did those messages impact you? Oh, from a young age. Um, yeah, and I cover this in the book that it's just crazy. Um, words are powerful. Mm. And say that all the time, and, and yet we take it for granted. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, and I know a lot of adults don't, in um, a book called How We, How we Love, uh, it says that most adults do not remember a time when they were little, when they were comforted, not comforted, like you got an owie on your knee, but you had an emotional trauma Mm -hmm. and an adult caring parent in your life saw you saw the need and comforted you. Most of us don't have a memory of that. And I'm one of those, Mm -hmm. my earliest and most founding memory for me as a child started, uh, right around age five. Um, my father, took my sister and I and moved two provinces away in a a hurried divorce and escape with his mistress who became my stepmother Mm. and she was the abuser Mm. and it was regularly stated to myself and my sister by my stepmother we didn't have to keep you we could have put you up for adoption at the age of five to carry that we didn't have to keep you, mm. we put you up for adoption, made this little five-year-old girl in me try to be this perfect person. Oh, of course. People pleaser, I am. <laughs> yes. I mean, um, it was embedded. That's in the me. survival, right? That was your survival okay. technique for sure. Absolutely. And so it wasn't a household of comfort. It wasn't a household of love. Uh, My stepmother and father, there was dishes being thrown in furniture. There was words being flung all the time. And to me, that was the example of marriage. That Mm. was the example of what love was. And then you get into the physical, emotional, spiritual abuse that I had from age five onward. It, it was normal right? For Mm -hmm. me, that's what I deserved. That's what was my line in life to live. So when I married an abuser and repeated that cycle, that's how it happens. It was always interesting to me when I went over to friend's house and I got to see their parents interact and their household interact. And I went, well, isn't this the nice little fake facade, right? (laughs) They put on a good act, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew that my family put on a good act as well. Mm -hmm. I rarely had friends over because I was terrified. What if they saw the real? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How will I be judged? Because as a child and a teenager, always afraid of judgment anyways. But I think there is a guttural instinct that somehow knew this wasn't right but this is what I had and this is what I deserved somehow. My father came from an abusive family. Um, He married an abuser. I married an abuser. It's generational. It is. It is. That reminded me also of, I, when I I grew up, my parents divorced when I was like 12 and 13. Um, 
and you know they needed to right <laughs> that needed to happen yeah I remember when I was younger when they were still married I went to a friend's house and they uh her parents were cuddling and holding hands and I was like why are your parents doing that like I thought it was <laughs> the strangest thing and she's like because they love each other and I was like what <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was weird. I was like, that's so weird. And I remember going to people's houses for dinner and sitting around the table and getting a stomach ache. Oh. Because yeah. it just felt so different. So foreign, right? Yeah. So yeah. Foreign. Yeah. Which is, and I think when we're just going to go all over the place today, I just know this. Um, <laughs> when I think about two, in the fact of what you just said around, this is what we learn, what love is. Mm -hmm. And then I think about the messages I give as a sex educator to kids about what healthy relationships are, right? And and I do, I do talk about sometimes where some of what I'm saying of what a healthy relationship is, you may not even see in your home. Right. Cause the, yeah. I'm like, we hope to learn about love in our home. We hope to learn about what security is in our home. Um, but because I, I worked in foster care and so I'm very aware and I'm also recognize some of my own story that that is not what we always get in our own homes. Hmm. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what do teachers like myself need hmm. to be giving to youth to help them understand? Cause I, you know, I think about the messages kids might get around that mm -hmm. then them feeling terrible, right? Or feeling disillusioned. Yeah. And so what, what is a way that I could do a better job in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I just, I had so many body images, uh, problems as a, as a young teenager. Mm -hmm. um, I did do self-harm. I didn't want to be a girl. I didn't want to be anything along the same line as my abuser, my stepmother. Oh yeah. So it wasn't like an identity crisis of, um, you know, trying to figure out who I am and what pronoun or anything like that. It was, I didn't want to have any connection with my abuser and she was female. And so therefore I hated and didn't want to be female. Um, oh gosh, that was a horrible stage. Um, I think, and so one of those things I do, as you know, I, I teach what's called safe haven boundaries in regards to um, minors. And I, I do that nationally and around the Senate and my neighborhood. Um, the idea that our bodies are sacred, mm -hmm. they're beautifully and wonderfully made by a creator um, and how we treat them and how others treat them and how we let others treat them mm -hmm. is powerful. So I'm always about making sure consent that we teach consent mm -hmm. and we teach it strong where it doesn't matter what gender you're associating with you have the ability to say no and that's one of the biggest things as a survivor when you're in a victim stage um no is not a permissible word right you you right. can't use that and i remember one time where my stepmom was in my face and i was hitting that age around 16 i think and I'd finally, I mean, I, I knew not to talk back. I mean, that never ended well. You'd be across the room and you didn't know what hit you until the wall hit you, right? Oh, um, and so enough, you know, 
bloody lips and and just yeah and so she was in my face inches away spewing and yelling at the top of her lungs and I just sat there calmly Hmm. and finally when she was done I made the accident of saying are you done are you ready to talk now Hmm. and that was the first time I started taking control over my body and what I was going to allow yeah and to start standing up in in my own (laughs) immature 16 year old way and saying no like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to interact with you in that state um and that goes from everything from physical interaction to emotional interaction how we teach kids and minors that they have a right to say no yeah. And to put up the hand and say, when you're calm and you're ready to talk, I'll come back to this mm-hmm. room or let's take a time out or no, I don't want you to hug me or I don't want you to touch me that way. Um, those are empowering. And for victims who have not had power over their own bodies for years, if we can teach that, that you do have a say over your own person, That's huge. Mm -hmm. I feel like, yes, one of the things, and I like that you talked about where it's not permissible, right? Because there is this illusion that no is an easy word to say. It's two letters. It should roll off the tongue. No, it doesn't. (laughs) And and I, I have been teaching and doing in some of my workshops this thing where I have people close their eyes and I said, I want you to be in tune with your body. And I'm going to say these phrases to you. Don't say no to me. No back talking. You know, and I I list off phrases that you might have heard in your home growing up. And then I'm like, what does that do to you? Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, my chest has gotten tight. I didn't even realize, you know. And I'm like, we grew up in a society where we were told not to disappoint people. No is a disappointing word for many, right? So then we go through the whole layer. I'm like, their consent, I think, is one of the the most complicated and hardest things to understand, especially because we've grown up. America was actually built on non-consent. Yes, exactly. Our entire country was built on non-consent. And so it's something that's very foreign to us. And I have kids when I show the consent video in classes and it's a cultural, there's also a cultural difference for many different people. Right. And I had some kids who pointed, um, pointed out a race issue for me where they said, Miss Kara, I don't, I don't want to say that this is a black and white thing, but if we are telling our parents, know that we are not going to hug our auntie, we're going to get whooped. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, we don't know if that works in white families. And so I was like, wow, let's talk about that. (laughs) Right. I mean, I remember that as a kid, it was like family came to visit and you had to go in your PJs, kiss and hug every relative that was in that room before you could go to bed and no questions asked you. That wasn't even, I mean, that I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. saying 
mm-hmm. let alone in a normal, maybe healthy family, but that was a no, no game option. Yeah. 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 So we had to talk about different ways where I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I, I talked to him about, I'm an adult and I have to learn new things every day. And we are starting to learn what is safer for us and what is better for our bodies. And I was like, our generation never learned that. We didn't learn that. We weren't given those conversations and now we have to learn, but it's like really hard, right? Like that's, how do you give that to those kids who don't want to disappoint their parents and want to stay safe, right? Like you talked about of being literal, what you need to do for survival. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I remember as a child, um, you compartmentalize you do. And I, and I write about this in the book, how there was the God of my stepmother. You know, mm-hmm. I was so terrified of dusting that Bible. I thought lightning was going to strike me. I was seven years old. I was terrified to touch the Bible. Oh my gosh. I thought lightning was going to strike me. I was a sinful, horrible child that they oh. didn't have to keep. They could have put up for adoption, you know, all that. I, I thought so little of myself that God, her God thought little of me too. Oh, but oh. thank goodness. We went to church and I got to go to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. I loved craft time. I'm a, I'm a big crafter. Um, but there was another God I got to learn. Yes. And that was the God that when I was in my bed by myself late at night, terrified, listening to the yelling and screaming and breaking of dishes. Um, when I was terrified on, was there going to be someone dead in the morning that I would have to deal with? Mm-hmm. Um, that was the God that I knew held me. Mm-hmm. and hurt me and listened to me and didn't judge me. Um, that was, that was an important image for me to hold on to that. I was loved in a way in that moment by this unforeseen thing, because when I woke up in the morning, mm-hmm. I knew that there was another presence. So you compartmentalize as a victim and you behave accordingly for survival but the moments you can get for your own identity and start building that you just hold on to those those are huge yeah Mm -hmm. so a lot of survival is compartmentalizing and yeah okay I have to hug and kiss auntie and grandpa and everyone and even on the lips right Mm -hmm. um you just do it because that's survival but then you cherish those moments where you you can just be yourself and be held by something else than by your abuser. Yeah. I think that phrase you just, that stuck out to me is when you said her God, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but that's so, I mean, uh, it's just so true that we have, I just think even with our country right now and the way God is being used, Yeah. yeah, you know, and it's like, it is. I have to sort of say what I don't believe in. Like when people find out what uh, you're a pastor and they're, you're a Christian, it's like, those are the big C words, right? And P mm-hmm. words. Like, it's like almost like dropping an F bomb. It is. It is. It and really like, is. I have to say what I'm not mm-hmm. and what I don't believe um, for them to stop taking the steps back and start right. leaning in more and go, okay, so if you're not that, then what are you? What right. do you believe in? How do you, because it's all words until they see action, right? It, words are empty unless you're actually living it and walking it. So mm-hmm. yeah. 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 
So you had talked about, you know, you were able to leave uh, the marriage that with abuse mm-hmm. and now you have a new partnership. Yes. So how has that changed your life in a way that you didn't expect? <laughs> well, it's sort of funny because um, I had truly given up. <laughs> <laughs> I was done dating, man, the dating apps, all that. Oh, that's horrible. And then when you're a parent and you're a single parent, you're going through that. It's just Oh, it becomes exhausting. And so there's a group of single ladies friends that I was with, and we actually started looking at a house um, here in Muckleteo. It was like $7,000 a month. It was like this huge, gorgeous, huge house overlooking the bay and the ferry dock. And it's like, if we all pay $1,500 a month, we can like start our own commune. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that you do that. I actually feel like this is the way we need to go. <laughs> I feel like that is how we should be living. I'm supporting red tent. Here we go. Right. Um, and so I had literally given up, but I had forgotten to close out some of those dating apps. Mm. And so my partner um, found me on a dating app that I hadn't closed out and it was connected to my Instagram. And so he literally stalked me on Instagram <laughs> and was just watching my feed, not sort of like liking a couple things here and there because I'm a big backpacker hiker and then found an opportunity to insert himself into a conversation that I had posted and started dropping these hints. And um, I had never expected to find another partner. I had never expected mm-hmm. to find love again. I was willing to just be, Mm. right? This Mm. is as good as it's going to get. And that's sort of like the attitude I had with my first husband and the abuse was, well, this is as good as it's going to get. In fact, when I, when I agreed to marry him, he proposed to me, I was 19. I was stupid and dumb and 19 and desperate and had super low self-esteem. He proposed to me over the phone drunk. Oh, really? And I said, yes, because this is as good as it's going to get. Remember, I had that implanted wording in my head. You are useless. You are bad. You are nothing. Could have put you up for adoption. You know, you, there's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, I, I didn't have boyfriends in high school. I thought mm-hmm. myself completely ugly. And still to this day, struggle mm-hmm. with good image, uh, a healthy image of myself because of those little sure. things, mm-hmm. right? It was like, man, here's a guy that likes me we'd only been on three dates hmm. that's mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and he's asking me America, better jump on this right this is yeah. as good as here's my get. opportunity yeah this is it's gonna get and so when I was um a single parent and kids and these women it's like well this is as good as it's gonna get let's just find happiness in it's as good as it's gonna get so when I started having this Instagram conversation with my uh partner it was a surprise. And I think that's one of those lovely things that when we least expect it, yeah. goodness can come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we have assumptions and we have comparisons of what should be and could be, I, I always hear people say, stop shooting on yourself, right? right. I, should, I should have that, right? <laughs> um, stop shooting on yourself. And um, I let all of that go. And when I let it go, I think I was more open to actually receiving this unconditional love that he is just amazing with. I mean, he brings a smile to my face. Just his presence warms me to a place that I know I'm safe. 
Mm-hmm. I know I'm loved for who I am and what I have journeyed, right? And I think the true test to this is we got married during COVID, right? Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> um, so we can survive COVID, we can survive anything, right? There's marriages that were broken during COVID. Yeah. Three weeks after we were married, I had a brain bleed. Yes. Oh my goodness. When you say in sickness and in health, in those vows, talk about putting it to the test. And I literally told him because we didn't know what the future held. I literally told him because I went back to that little girl. Sure. Not worthy. And said, you know, it's okay if you want to leave me. I'd understand. Hmm. And he looked at me and said, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hell no, I'm not leaving you. I love you. And I never had anybody say that to me. Oh my goodness. Because there was always the fear of being abandoned from yeah. that young age and being left because we didn't have to keep you. Mm-hmm. I think that's where like my faith comes in is we have a God that says, I will not abandon you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will always be there for you. That's my God. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, speaking of that, of your brain bleed, <laughs> my gosh, also something I didn't realize. I, I was like, how am I like living under a rock? Like, what I is really well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? That's a journey. Oh my gosh, man. How, I mean that, I mean, so many emotions there. I mean, I would think so many emotions. But how in the world too, did you, I mean, I think about the recovery of that and you wrote a book. Oh, uh, part of the recovery was the book. Right. So talk to us about that. Cause that's, wow. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. I mean, it's remarkable, right? Like the, the healing journey yeah. of that. And then here you are writing your book as part of that healing within relearning to so walk things. everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm playing street hockey anymore. I can't make you know, fast turns. And, um, I really do need a good night's sleep. Otherwise the next day is just bombed. But, um, I started writing the book over a decade ago and, um, it was a creative writing class. And one of my professors, I wrote like the prologue, I wrote the prologue Hmm. and, um, professor read it and went, holy crap, you need to finish this book. This wow. is an important book to write. Mm-hmm. And then I had another professor after I did the first chapter and then life happened. Right. And sure. I dropped it and kids and busyness and work and all that. And it always stayed in the background. Like, yeah, but what would I do with it? Right. Mm-hmm. What would be the point of it? And so I had to come up to the point of what would be the purpose of writing the book? Mm-hmm. Is it just a rant and rave about, you know, be a Job and poor me type of thing or whatever. Right. Um, and then during my brain recovery, it became very apparent to me. I had been holding on to stuff I needed to let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of healing is letting go, naming it and letting go. Um, and so I began writing as part of the healing. I needed to literally empty my brain of the ugliness that had been in there for so many years Mm -hmm. and to make the slate clean and start a new life. I had a chance at a new life, a new brain, literally. Right. Um, 
why would I keep it poisoned with all that ugliness and all those ugly words I had as a child and in my first marriage? And so that writing freed me from all those words that I didn't need to carry anymore. That wasn't part of my identity anymore. Um, it, those, those words and those messages got me to this point of healing mm -hmm. and telling my story. So if any of those words sneak back in, yeah, what are some of the things that you do to help quiet those words? Oh, um, I do a thing where I, I take a deep breath. I, cause you, uh, as someone with uh, PTSD and CPTSD, you always will have triggers mm -hmm. and to be able to recognize what those triggers are. And is it environmental, like the smell of a cologne yes. um, movement? Uh, oh my gosh. Right. There's everything around you and to be able to name it and to center yourself. And when you start falling into old patterns of that little girl voice of what you've been told, sometimes the best is to talk it out with somebody. I mean, uh, you, you verbalize it outward. Mm -hmm. You release, I I'm an external processor, mm -hmm. but if you're holding it in, you're rationalizing it within your own injured self. Right. And so when you can verbalize it outside your body and another person goes, wait a minute, what did you just say? No, that's not truth. Right. Mm -hmm. I had one of those amazing moments. My daughter and I were reminiscing. If you want to use the word reminiscing, we were remembering the trauma of that abusive um, relationship and her father's um, physically harming her and me. And I started breaking down and saying, um, I am so sorry that I didn't protect you enough. Mm -hmm. And her spouse, her spouse is sitting there at the table, this wise beyond his years, 25 year old said, hold on full stop. Why are you apologizing? You should never have to protect from somebody who's supposed to love. Mm. Mm. You should never have to protect from somebody who is supposed to love. Yeah. Those are powerful words. Even, you know, years yeah. later, we continue to learn, right? Like you said. Yeah. Um, and so you're just constantly rewiring mm. and come across phrases and you're going to say things as a survivor that you go, wait a second, what did I just say? No, that is not right. Mm. Or somebody else who loves you will correct you and say, let's take a full stop here. Yeah. You don't need to apologize. Yeah. yeah. I think that's powerful. Brought tears to my eyes, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, hold up. <laughs> I feel that. I, I feel like a lot, too, with women, we get used to apologizing. Yes. And. Too much. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so grateful, too, like for, you know, I have, I have, two dear friends in my life who are male actually who call me out you like they hear me say it and they go will you stop apologizing when that all the time <laughs> they say to me stop apologizing and stop asking for permission mm -hmm. and it's something that I hear <clears throat> so many women do all the time I think that's something that just really makes me really sad to hear, I hear it so often from women 
everywhere that we it, just get used to apologizing. It is so embedded in our system. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately you could, you know, I could Bible geek out on you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. <laughs> that whole story of in the Midrash and Lilith. Um, we don't care about that. I did a whole paper on uh, creation stories and how it sets in motion uh, the gender normatives of that culture by their creation story. It is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so in Christianity, we have the creation story of Adam and Eve, right? Yeah. And then if you look at the Hopi Indian, right? Or um, even Japanese creation story. And because she spoke when she wasn't supposed to, she's forever supposed to walk two feet behind her husband. Oh my gosh, right? Oh. Um, I mean, it's just mind boggling that we are cellularly embedded from our creation story on what our behavior should be, right? And so um, it's fascinating to me that we don't have the Lilith story in the Christian Bible, but Jewish mythology actually has the Lilith story where um, Lilith, and that's the first Eve, right? And Adam were in the, in creation and how it's written is Adam placed himself above Lilith. Now, mm. some say that's sexually, some okay. say that's authoritatively, mm -hmm. but Lilith knew it was wrong. And she said, no. And she cried out for God to save her. Talk about your first time a woman stands up for herself. Wow. And it's not the Bible. Um, and so God took her from Adam and put her on this cliff for safety. And she stayed there while he had a well, we would say a come to Jesus moment, right? With Adam and said, you can't behave like this, right? right? And went into this, like, I'm so sorry. I I shouldn't behave like this. Bring her back. I'm lonely. And so God sent angels to go to Lilith. And in that conversation, because she'd been left alone, brewing in her emotions too long, she'd become angry. And she said, no, I will, know God. I will not go back. Hmm. I will treated like this and that's where we get cherubims and little angels on our cribs and things like that because she says if you do not promise your children to god in the first eight days i will come and take them so she's actually labeled as the screeching owl in isaiah um i'm, I like, know. I to, I'm like i need to do a deep dive now <laughs> this is super crazy because if we had had that as our creation story mm. think about the empowerment women would have today it's okay to say no over our bodies. It's okay to call upon God and we can call and check how men treat us. I mean, it is just mind blowing, but because we don't have that, we have Eve being blamed for all sin. Yeah. And now forever we say, sorry and sorry and sorry and sorry and sorry. Which, and also the other thing that blows my mind because of all of this too, is that the fact that biologically, and this is what you learn as a sex educator, we are all we start, everyone starts female in the womb. The default is ovary. And so it, it like blows my mind. <laughs> like, like we, you know, like that's why, I mean, literally why everyone has nipples is because we all start female <laughs> until the end, like until your body accepts testosterone or however that biologically works. But I was like, I'm like, what? And then here we are <laughs> apologizing. <laughs> Right. And no. then you think about, right, we have wisdom in the Bible, Sophia, she, right? Yeah. Wisdom. Yeah. 
God is more than just one gender. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I could go on a whole spiel about oh, yeah. That. I mean, <laughs> let's do a three-part series, right? <laughs> I just feel there's so much, so much oh, to go. Yeah. So I want to talk about a little bit of speaking of the fact that right we have this way of doing things and our our country also has been built up on systems Mm. so what systems do you believe need to change to help end intimate partner violence Mm. oh there's so many systems broken in our world (laughs) oh there is this idea still that women are property Mm-hmm. to their male counterpart partners, um, even intimate partners, same-sex partners, right? That there is one that's going to be the head of the household, right? You even claim it on your taxes, head of the right. house. Oh Think about that. <gasps> yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's just throw up right now. Pause. Emoji, here we go. Okay. But there's a head of a household. So therefore someone has the upper hand in the relationship. Yeah. Um. And maybe most of us uh, that grew up in some some form of a traditional, you know, dad came home and supper was supposed to be on the table, right? Yeah. Um, who who did what traditional sense of cleaning and cooking? And if things weren't right, you'd say apologies, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when things aren't right, it's okay to be angry. Mm. Anger and all emotions are a God-given thing. What we do with them is what matters. Um, Harm comes in relationship, physical harm between intimate partners comes um, when somehow power and authority are misconstrued and that person feels they have the right to subdue Mm -hmm. and to harm and to control. Right. Um, As a person that was raped by their spouse because they have the authority and power to get what they want when they want it. That's not okay. Right. Um, so this idea is deeply embedded in our society and in our systems, right? When, when there's rape victims, uh, the first question sometimes is, well, she was in the wrong place, the wrong time. She chose to walk down the street or dress a certain way. No, (laughs) it is not okay to do harm take control over another person's um, person being and body um so the systems that need to be changed first come with not making bodies a piece of property right and that comes from human trafficking to even the vows that happen at a wedding right who yes. gives this piece of property away mm-hmm. i i have often thought about how actually church is one of the first places that makes um that you know spreads that language of mm-hmm. women being property in um, the way with purity culture number one i'm like cool guys <laughs> thanks no no because you it's won't get enough goats. Us. yeah mm-hmm. you won't get enough goats if she's been tainted no um that's not but it's so deeply embedded, this ideology okay. of women are this, I mean, and the, yeah, I totally agree. The church has completely messed this up in regards to sexuality. We do this thing of, it's this be- beautiful and amazing thing to our confirmation kids. Don't do it. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. For, for mm-hmm. pertaining to sex. Or we do the opposite of it's this gross, ugly, dirty thing. Save it for the one you love. 
Yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? You're like, wow. <laughs> no I wonder we're all a little messed up. <laughs> I do this at age 12 to our teens it's like no wonder they're messed up and, and, and then we're gonna send you in the world and not talk about it have a good day <laughs> so. man so I think if I were to say the systems that need to be um changed to end intimate partner violence is that you are responsible for your body and you do not have the right to control another person's body without permission. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we talked about this in a little bit with consent. And sometimes I think we don't give the permission to um, young girls, even uh, older, when someone's asking for permission, they don't know internally. And so they'll just say yes, right? Mm -hmm. um, to to give the toolkit for people to say, you know what? I don't know what I want right now. I need you to just pause. Yeah. Because we automatically have, you have to say yes, or you have to say no in this moment. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, that's not how it goes. I don't know myself. So I need a timeout here to, to recollect myself and figure this all out. Mm -hmm. We need to get rid of people pleasing. I'm the first one to say it. Um, but the systems that are, are deeply broken is possession of bodies. Mm -hmm. um, control and uh, of of male counterparts primarily over their female spouses or partners yeah. um yeah I think that would be my biggest thing and it goes like you said way way, way back where pieces of property and I wonder I also it. too and one of the things I mean being a mom to a son mm -hmm. I think about this a lot right um I actually think we also need to emotionally care for our sons more than we do. I think we need to hug them more. I think we need to care for them and their emotions more. Um, I mean, I'm just, I, I was taken aback when I was um, teaching just yesterday about puberty and talking about um, crying, mm -hmm. right? Are the emotional aspect of puberty is we get sad and we cry. And I always try to make a point to say to kids, it's okay to cry. Uh, and we talk about it. And I had a boy say to me, I was just told at nine, I was told when I was nine that I wasn't allowed to cry anymore. Oh, that and just breaks my heart. <laughs> I know. And he's like, and I remember, I mean, the fact that this kid was able to, first of all, remember and then put words to it and say it in front of this entire class I was like this is amazing right so he was like I remember a family member told me I wasn't allowed to cry anymore and I remember that made me really mad mm. and then I put those emotions and he goes and I remember stopping crying because I didn't you know that's what I was told I had to do but I remember feeling angry for hours just hours and he goes, and it still makes me really mad. And I go, because it should. And Somebody I said, control away from him. Mm -hmm. Allowed to experience or not allowed to experience. Mm -hmm. I'd be mad about that. Yeah. But then that, that anger, when he feels like crying as an adult, mm -hmm. will come out as anger. Right. 
because their spouse made them feel like crying, which then is shame-based, right? Right. So therefore lash out in an angry form and you get abuse. Yeah. And I said to him, and I said to him, and I said, I mean, all the kids, I said, first of all, um, you had a right to feel angry. And second of all, when sadness is not taken care of, it turns to anger. And I said, and it will live inside of your body. And then it damages your body. Like this is what they've been learning. Right. And I said, I give all of you boys, especially in this room, permission to cry. You are a human. Humans are supposed to feel emotions. You may cry. If you need to go to your bedroom and shut your door to do it, you can do it. I'm like, it's healthy. You're supposed to. And I give, and I go, and I know for a fact that you have a sweetheart and that needs to be taken care of. Absolutely. And all the boys like stopped and they looked at each other and they shook their heads. Yes. And I was like, see, like, come on. (laughs) That's like the high five moment. You run around the room and slap everyone's hands. Yes. Yes. We're changing the world. Mm -hmm. And I think for, for boys, it's, you can't show crying, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that's somehow considered weakness. Yeah. For girls, it's, you can't show anger. It's true. Yeah. And so we, so though, so then crying is okay for girls and anger is okay for boys and they don't get to experience the full, full realm of emotion that their bodies need, that their mental state needs. They don't have a place to plug it and it's there. They don't have a place to plug it in. Um, And it comes out sideways in so many other ways. Um, Yeah. Wow. Good for you. I'm so excited (laughs) you're doing those classes and you're saying those powerful words to those kids. I know that my my two boys, um, I love, love dearly. And oh man, they were still snuggling up with me and my college boy comes home and we'll sit on the couch and he like snuggles up with me and we'll watch movies. Um, spending that quality time, mm-hmm. they're in real conversation. I mean, you can still do side-by-side play with 20-year-olds. It's okay if that's how I they're- love it. <laughs> I <laughs> love it. Oh, I saw I saw this TikTok video the other day and it was this boy dancing with his mom at his wedding. It was the mother-son dance. And it, it was them dancing together. And then all of a sudden the bride had switched the song and put on the song that his mom sang to him as a baby or like throughout his childhood. And it was the most precious things. Like the mom just goes, Oh, you know, the son immediately like looks up, he's shocked and he looks around and then he places his head in his mother's neck and cries. And I was like, stop it. Oh my gosh. I was like, stop it. It was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I tell people all the time, um, they're like, oh, I shouldn't cry, especially in church or things like that. Right. And when I'm doing weddings or, or funerals, I mean, those sacred moments of true, um, just rawness, it's okay to cry. It's a Mm -hmm. God giving emotion. And those are holy waters flowing. Oh yeah. The holy water's flowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were given tear ducts for a reason. Yes. Not one gender, both genders. We're given mm-hmm. tear ducts for a reason. So mm-hmm. use <laughs> Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. We are at coming to time. 
Okay. So I asked Pam, all of my guests, what story are you reframing today? Mm, what am I reframing today? Oh, it's been a journey. <laughs> um, I think for me, reframing, um, I continue reframing my own story of survival. Um, I think for me, especially when I look back on those early days of my brain surgery, uh, and I'm a, like, I'm a, I, I said, I'm a big backpacker, hiker, and there's days that are joyful and there's days that are difficult. And I think that's in everyone's life, but we have a choice when we wake up every day mm -hmm. on how we're going to engage the world. And I can grumble about my past. I can grumble about the unknowns of the future. I can grumble about today even. Or I can come at it with an attitude of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And in those first days after the brain surgery, um, relearning to walk. And my new normal is, uh, it's a walking waterbed 24-7. That's my new normal. I'm walking on a waterbed 24-7. So mm -hmm. when, you, when you see me at those big conferences and everything. I don't make quick turns. When people call my name, I'm like slowly turning. Yeah. Because when I woke up in those early weeks, I knew that when I put my legs over the side of the bed, what I was going to have to face, the hard work, but I got to put my legs over the side of the bed. Yeah. I get a gift every day that I'm here. Mm -hmm. I could have been killed. My children could have been killed by the domestic violence that we experienced. I could have ended my life many years ago with suicide. I could have chosen a different path. And yet... The moment I can come at everything with a place of gratitude, everything opens up in a different perspective. So reframing for me is about my attitude and how I'm going to encounter and engage the world moving forward that my story doesn't limit me and label me forever that person. Mm -hmm. I want to reframe everything from a place of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think so true, right? I think it's, we, I think we get stuck sometimes in the, in the murk, almost the murkiness that we often, and I know this is true for me, so that's why I'm saying this, um, forget about the also wonderful things that are going on, you know? And so that's a good, it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for sure. Well, Pam, I just appreciate you so much. This was just, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope that uh, people listening, my listeners will go and find mile zero. <laughs> There's, <laughs> I read the, I have not read it yet. The reviews of it are wonderful that yeah. I have read. And that it really touched a lot of people. So um, 
Is there a way that people, if hearing this, then want to reach out to you? Is there a way they can do that? Gosh, um, yeah, I've not had that ask before. I'm I'm doing a, a big public speaking thing for the Snohomish County Domestic Violence um, Resource Center coming up in services. I'm a pastor at uh, Point of Grace Lutheran Church in Muckleteo, so I suppose you can reach out to me that way. Um, the, the book's available on Amazon and Book Baby and Barnes and Noble. A lot of people ask me, why was it named Mile Zero? Mm. And I think I want to share just in the last moments here why it was named Mile Zero. I was born in Dawson Creek, BC, which is Mile Zero of the Alaskan Way Highway. Wow. And sort of this, you know, sideways joke in the family was always, well, you'll never amount to anything because you started at zero. Oh my goodness. Yes. I started at zero and look at where I am now. Yeah. I started at zero. We all start at zero mm-hmm. on the road of life. And we have so many mile markers along the way. And we should celebrate every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, we should. I just love that. Yay. I have my arms in the air. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Pam. I just feel like your story today um, has helped me, has reframed already some things. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I am remembering, like, I need to text my daughter. I need to talk to her about this, (laughs) that I need to tell her. And I need to say this to my son. (laughs) So you've just given me more to think about. So I appreciate you so much. Well, I'm grateful for the time with you, Kara. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show and uh, blessings to you and all you do.